Hey, everybody. Everybody, welcome. Hi, Gina. Come on in. We set up tables for you. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, okay. So this is week four of Table 101. And we've uh, covered a number of things, including a liturgy walkthrough last week. Today, we're going to talk about uh, discipleship mission, leadership, and membership at the table. Um, and I'll, I'll probably just teach a bit on each of these aspects and then open it up for dialogue or questions or reflections as we go. So we'll kind of do that as we go. And I do apologize for um, coughing and uh, sniffling today. Um, all right. So discipleship in our church. Um, well, I'm not going to talk about everything uh, that it, there is to say about discipleship at our church. I'm going to talk about some unique focuses, some particular emphases that we make. And I, I, I think that um, the way to sum it up is that at the table, we make a big deal about wants or desires. Um, or, and I'll use wants, desires, I'll even use words like longings or uh, needs. I'll kind of use these synonymously, even though we could parse out the differences. Most uh, churches in their discipleship programs, in our experience, focus on two different um, aspects of what it means to be human slash how people focus on formation. And that is they foc on, uh, focus on words and works. So words, what I mean by that is like truth, doctrine, knowledge, propositions, understandings, things like that. Um, <clears throat> I think many of us uh, at our church have come to faith through the, the declaration of truth, right? This is Paul in Romans. He says, how will they come to believe if they haven't heard? Those kinds of things. Um, so we want to affirm that it's important to use words. The irony will not be lost on you that I'm using them now, right? So we actually do think that they're important. Hey, come on in, Phil. Do you think they're important? Um, things like foolishness and ignorance. There's nothing, nothing virtuous about ignorance. There's nothing... Um, there's nothing blissful about ignorance. There's nothing um, virtuous about heresy. It's just so this isn't a critique about words. Rather, um, as you'll see in a moment, uh, we're delineating these so we can talk about the insufficiency of focusing on them and the norm the, the the normative order they're supposed to take, or we think they should take in the life of discipleship. So uh, some some traditions, some churches focus a lot on words. Others focus a lot on works. And what I mean by, by this is an emphasis on morality, deeds, obedience, holiness, things like that. Um, that's that's in some traditions, right? So don't do these actions, do these actions. In other traditions, a focus on works is can you speak in tongues? You know, if you can speak in tongues, then you're a real Christian. And if you can't, well, we'll pray for you. You know, that kind of thing. Um, works are important. We neglect them. We see things like injustice and hypocrisy, things that the scriptures are very explicit are not of the kingdom of God. 
Um, but growing in knowledge and, and modifying behavior, these two things, I think, typify a lot of discipleship efforts. And they're not wrong, but they are, we contend, insufficient. They're necessary, but not complete in and of themselves to uh, transform our minds and our hearts and our communities and our bodies. So uh, one of the things we talk about a lot here, um, you, and you'll hear us talk about this um, primarily in DNA, which is our discipleship vehicle, is that we have to deal with what we know and what we do with what we desire. And so we're looking for a formation that takes all three of these attributes or categories seriously in the life of a human, in the life of, uh, of a human community even. So let's talk about wants for a second. Um, I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but my experience with desire in church is um, basically threefold. The first is we just ignore them. It doesn't matter what you want, right? Uh, there's there's a lot of spiritual bypassing uh, in this. Like so, yeah. Regardless of what you want, here's what God wants. So get on get on board, right? So ignore it. Uh, the second is some traditions. Uh, you name it so you can claim it. Like whatever your heart desires, as long as you delight yourself in the Lord, you'll get it, right? So ask and you shall receive. So there's also a tradition where we don't just ignore our desires. Come on in. Don't just ignore our desires but we uh, fulfill them, right? So the only thing keeping us from actually the, the triumphant Christian life is not being able to not being able to name what we want. Come on in, John. Walk, walk slower. <laughs> yeah, just a, uh, this was set up for some kind of wedding reception yesterday. Like I stepped on a grape over here. Um, <laughs> And, and I had enough time to set up chairs for this, for our table one on today. I didn't have enough time to break down tables. So it was a bit of a surprise. And I thought, although this isn't obviously ideal, if you're coming in late, we can just glare at people when they come in. Um, so we ignore desire. We uh, come on in, Dennis, bring your whole brood. Uh, we ignore desires uh, or we uh, seek to fulfill desire. Um, or the third thing we do is we try to kill it, try to kill our desire. And, and this can sometimes be change it, right? So I desire something and I judge that desire. It's wrong. So I have to overcome it. I have to defeat it. I have to kill it. Uh, this, this often expresses itself in Christian traditions where, um, you sort of cut off the heart cut off the effective, emotive, um, feeling part aspect of Christianity. And you sort of live, hi Heidi, you sort of live in your, for lack of a better word, come on in, Lauren, you live in your left brain, basically, right? So uh, those are three ways that I've experienced kind of a jacked up relationship to wants and desires. You, uh, you seek to ignore your desire, you seek to uh, fulfill your desire, or you seek to kill your desire. And what we want to contend here in Discipleship at the Table is that our desires are meeting places with God and each other. That one of Jesus's primary modes of discipleship with the people he lived with was 
to get them to name and own what they wanted in his presence. Right? So one of Jesus's most oft-repeated questions is, what are you seeking? What do you want? Um, and you've got some perplexing interactions that make, that I think provoke us into this imagination that desire is uh, a doorway into meeting with God because you've got these audacious places in scripture where, you know, James and John uh, bring, bring their mom and they're like, Hey Jesus, uh, we want you to do whatever we ask of you, which is just a crazy audacious statement to make. Right. And, and Jesus doesn't do what I would do, which is, um, you know, how dare you bring your mom to mom up on me, you know, but Jesus goes, okay, what do you want? And this is a telling interaction because what they say is something that's, you know, we come to find out through the teaching. Jesus is like, you're not, you don't even know what you're asking. If you did, you wouldn't ask for it because you don't want it. <laughs> right? That's basically what he says. But he is so excited that somebody's going to just say, here's what I want. Here's what I want. And so our discipleship then must deal with what we actually want. Not with what we should want, but what we do want. And we have to create spaces then where we can not only be aware of what we want, but share what we want. Right? So we can reckon with what's real. This is uh, much of what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I can say more about that in a bit. Uh, Dallas Willard says we have to get our wanters on the table if we're going to be formed in Christ. And what he means by we have to just like hold it, name it, see it. Um, let's see. Maybe I'll name this. Um, I'll name this. Uh, wants are 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 similar but different than needs. But uh, what we do in our discipleship groups is that we we pay attention to what we want because they usually signify three core needs that are um, common to all humanity. We see these in the scriptures. Come on in, Olivia. We see these in the scriptures. We see these uh, in Christian tradition. And these core uh, valid longings, we could call them, or needs, are people. Uh, the first is the, the need for belonging. Second is the need for significance. And the third is the need for security or safety. And in and through our discipleship groups, DNA groups, we pay attention to the places in our lives, uh, we call them kairos moments, where we have some kind of want or need that is either promised to us and we get excited or is threatened or thwarted and we get upset. And we discern in that desire, God, what are you doing here? Why are you bringing this want, to use a metaphor, online? And how can we meet you here? And then how do we believe the good news of Jesus in that need, in that desire, right? So then we become aware of what's going on. We hear some good news about what's going on in our hearts, or maybe we could say what's going on in our desire. And then we craft some kind of experiment where we will trust Jesus with that want, 
right? And trust Jesus in community with that one. And we check in, hey, how'd that go? You know, this little experiment of trust, this little offering of your body as a living sacrifice. What did you notice when you did that? You know? So uh, that's the work we do in our DNA groups. And that may be the unique aspect of discipleship at the table. So let me pause here at the end of our first little thing and see if there's any comments or questions or reflections. Yes, it seems to be that belonging, that all of these things, we need to lead them to live. I don't need yes. to productive, engaged life. Yes. So how do you distinguish between wants and really that? Yeah. Yeah, let me, let me use a pretty um, stark example that not every, not every want fits this example, but I'm going to go really far with the with it so we can kind of see the contrast or see the delineation. So uh, G.K. Chesterton, um, who was a Roman Catholic uh, writer around the turn of the century, he once quipped that every, every man knocking on the door of a brothel is seeking God. And what he means by that is, right? So you're getting this, right? So the want for maybe belonging is being expressed in this, um, I'm going to visit this brothel. But G.K. Chesterton is saying underneath that desire is this heartache for union with the Trinity. And so that's how we delineate between wants and needs, right? Um, I think it's wants sometimes express themselves in negative ways, right? But underneath that, underneath that maybe unhealthy or unholy or unhelpful want is a valid longing. And so if we can discern what that valid longing is and then hold it in community before God in the spirit to Jesus and hear what God wants us to, to know about it. You know, God, I, I feel like I don't belong and I'm seeking belonging in the door of a brothel. Lord, what do you want me to know about that? And then, and then there's some embodied response in our lives where we learn to trust God with that want. Does that make sense? Yeah. So saying that exploring our wants uh -huh. in community before the Lord reveals the need that is unmet or that is prompting us to do in this way. Yeah, it can. Yeah, it can. Um, yeah, go ahead, Ben. Um, another picture that I find helpful is that um, it, it's thinking about the longing, the deep longing, as this perfectly within the thing that it's not the glorical cycle filled, but it's aimed along the right? Yeah. And so we do leave lies about how we get this kind of longing filled with this sense of Right, but just like what what is it about emotion? What would I do 
like on this connection in terms of my own significance. Yeah. And what can I hear from God about significance and, and, and trust? You know, they get this connection. So, you know, how do I trust my leads to that? So, getting a promotion does not um, continue my significance. Yeah, but then it also is like an echo of you're created for to do something meaningful in the world, to image God, to bear, I mean, to bear authority. Jesus can't wait to give authority away and have people act with his resources and power in the world. And so that desire for what I do matters is a God given desire. You know? Yeah. No. Yeah. those of you who've been in DNA will recognize it. Um, and it's not the, it's like uh, 15% of the tool. So what you're asking about is we kind of build that together over a 10 to 12 month process. It's a great question. Um, but usually the, usually it's the, it's the um, I don't know how I answered your question quickly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I my Yes. Yes. Well, no, it's, it, it's a great, I mean, I think this, what I'm saying provokes that kind of reflection because that is the, that is the question. I mean, that is the, how does this happen? How does this work? Right. And I think for many of us, we, you know, either fulfill, kill, or ignore desire. And part of like un the unlearning of that is to stop being afraid or apathetic or attacking our desires and simply face them and befriend them. Th th this is the people who get, receive the most transformation in the gospel of Jesus are those who don't play the games with him or try to test him or trap him and are people who have no choice but to reckon with what they want because they've been bleeding for 13 years or they're alone at a well, right? I mean, it's the people who literally have no choice but to say, "This, please help me, my son is demon-possessed. This is what I want. Blind Bartimaeus, what do you want? Duh. Well, here's what I want. I want to see. And so, and so as much as possible, we want to inhabit that bold, courageous vulnerability with God and each other to just say, I, this is what I want. Yeah. We can return to questions you have about this, um, but I'm going to keep moving so we can make sure we get through uh, the other three things and then 
Uh, we'll, we'll pause for questions here next. So mission then, discipleship and mission, they're, they're really the same thing. <laughs> uh, meaning, um, Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians need the gospel. I mean, we all need the gospel, right? Um, often uh, mission is talked about in different traditions in different ways. For some traditions or churches, it's like service projects. Um, for some, it's uh, evangelism, door-to-door, or you know, maybe hosting a big crusade kind of uh, evangelism outreach night. For some, it's social justice. For some, it's inviting people to church. And for some, it's about something that happens over overseas. Right? We send out missionaries, and missionaries is code for people who live in another country right, and work over there. Um, we are endeavoring at the table. Again, I won't say everything there is to say about mission. I'll just say some unique qualities of how we're thinking about it and trying to inhabit it. We're endeavoring at the table to take seriously the devastating impact of colonialism on mission in the West. Uh, what I mean by colonialism is sort of this posture of um, as Christians going to places where there aren't Christians in a posture of domination and coercion that then uh, treats the people and the land and the resources as things that I'm in charge of. Right. And this has led to, I mean, I don't, I don't have to go on about colonialism, right? It's bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Right. Very bad. Yeah. And so that instinct, I think, lives in our tradition. I mean, even in the Episcopal tradition, we've got a long, long history of uh, either standing idly by while colonialism devastated populations and countries or actively participating in it. And so our tradition has work to do to reckon with that and repair that. So we're seeking to decolonize what it looks like to be on mission, which is hard for me because I, I don't have many good models for what that looks like. <laughs> that makes sense? So we're leading something as we discover it, which makes it um, I don't know, tricky. But a few things about mission then in our church that um, are ways that we're looking to do this. The first is um, we're taking seriously uh, uh, what Willie James Jennings talks about in his commentary on Acts of recovering a Gentile identity. So Willie James Jennings talks, he's a black scholar, and he talks a lot about how um, uh, one of the ways that this is my language. One of the ways that white Christians can learn to recover an ima a decolonized imagination is to recover their identity as guests in a faith that's not theirs. I get chills when I say that because it's, it really provokes me to think, what does it look like for me not to see myself as the center of Christianity, but as Christianity, something that I'm entering into as a guest that's not mine. 
So for instance, he talks about how um, in the book of Acts, this is, this is over and over and over again, what drives the drama that there are, there's this Jewish movement, a movement within Judaism to follow Jesus as the Messiah, that then the Jews have to figure out well, what does it mean for Gentiles to be included in that? Like practically, right? Like Gentiles have nasty habits, right? They pick their nose and they eat it. I mean, that's the kind of revulsion that the Jews feel when, you know, they're eating unclean animals and things like that. And Willie says, you know what? Um, part of learning to have a decolonized imagination is learning that you're joining something that's not yours and you are a guest here. And how does that change the way that we behave if we're a guest? For a guest. So I, that, I use that image to say, um, mission for us is learning to recover an imagination that we go looking for people of peace. This is from Luke chapter 10. You know, Jesus sends out his disciples in mission and he says, go and proclaim peace to the town you enter. And if there's a person who receives your peace, then, then stay with them, right? This is sort of a, um, maybe an archetypal story of what mission looks like. So we're sent into mission to look for mutuality, to look for somebody who receives us, but we have to be a person of peace to see a person of peace, to be received and to receive, right? So there's a joining or a surrendering that we go out in. The second is uh, we go out not powering up. You know, Jesus talks about going as lambs among wolves, carrying no purse. You know, you're going vulnerable and you're going without like, <laughs> a billion dollar budget, you know? Um, we don't go, we don't go to say like, you're welcome, I'm here, and I have what you need. But we go to say, uh, we go with our needs. Hey, I'm hungry. I didn't bring any, I didn't bring any money. Um, can we serve each other? Uh, we go looking for uh people who are responsive to this grace. <clears throat> You know, there's this provocative passage in this text um, that um, I actually want to read it to you because I've for years missed it. And I, I think uh, I've missed a great deal by missing it. Um, if my Bible will open. But there's this incredible part of this Luke 10 passage where, where Jesus says, you know, if this happens and this happens, then you say the kingdom of God has come upon you. And I often thought early on <clears throat> in my life that um, that this was the Christian missionary proclaiming the gospel to the heathen or something, you know. But listen to this. If anyone shares God's peace, then your peace will rest on that person. If not, your blessing will return to you. Remain in this house, eating and drinking whatever they set before you, for workers deserve their pay. This is sort of the guest language, right? Don't move from house to house. Whenever you enter a city and its people welcome you, eat what they set before you. Heal the sick who are there and say to them, God's kingdom has come upon you. There it is, right? You're healing the sick, so of course, this is God's kingdom, right? When, uh, as, yeah. So uh, the, the, the realization for me was um, God's kingdom isn't just healing the sick. It's this mutual hospitality that this person is enjoying that allows for God's power and provision to pour into these relationships, right? So this eating what's set before me, not moving from house to house, which is basically Jesus saying, um, 
don't get into a power patronage game where you're currying favor from uh, creating factions, basically creating differentials or hierarchies of relationships. Um, and so I think there's this responsiveness to grace that creates a capacity for God's kingdom to be experienced. Um, and then we go listening to see as Jesus would. Part of our discipleship process is learning to really listen. This discernment of desire is really listening, not fixing or trying to do something to somebody, but tending, being present. And I think that that's the posture in the world, uh, the mission in the world that we inhabit. So how does this look at our church? Well, <clears throat> one of the dominant ways it's looked hitherto is um, is seeking um so uh, table groups are one of our primary areas of mission where we gather for weekly rhythms of prayer and meals. So if DNA groups is loose, largely for discipleship, then table groups are largely for mission where we discern locally, what is God doing here? How do we meet, how do we meet those needs with the provision and presence of Christ? You know, um, another way that we have sought to be on mission is by hosting asylum seekers. This is something that has been a big part of our story um, especially up to and through COVID, um, our relations, we had a relationship with a ministry that was working on the border uh, between Mexico and the U.S. that was part of the ACNA, where we would um, bail out asylum seekers and host them in homes in our church. And I think we did that with four different men um, and a fifth we assisted. And this was a very, um, obviously, you know, in the previous administration, the, the border was a big deal. Um, in terms of the treatment of asylum seekers. And so we felt like we wanted to bring, we wanted to bring Christ's resources and presence to individuals because, you know, it's hard being in Indiana. What are you going to do about border disputes and walls being built and people being arrested, you know? So that's a bit about mission and a bit about how we're trying to think about it differently. I want to pause here for questions or reflections or thoughts. Um, for for I'm sorry for what? Yeah. Yep. Yep. We haven't done that up till now. We haven't done that. Um, I don't want to overspeak on this because I, I think there's a lot of validity to like short-term mission engagements. But um, there's also a lot of complicated parts of that too, and I haven't felt I haven't felt like I am clear on how to discern that very well, honestly. Um, and I, I don't know if Ben would say anything different than that, but we haven't. I, I try to think. I don't think we have done any short-term mission engagements. It's not that we wouldn't or won't. But there's just complications to that that I I want to be sensitive to, and I, I'm I'm not convinced that I'm fully sensitive to it. Does that response make sense? 
Yes. Yes. So I got somebody here who raised their hand and I'm I uh, said go ahead and type your question. Um uh, actually are you able to hear me? Yeah. Yeah, Michael, go ahead. Um so the whole concept of meeting as a gentile into something that doesn't belong to me, it kind of like like it's the opposite approach that my sister's church went where um, their church basically requires everyone to convert to Judaism to the extent it's almost like they both recognize the exact same problem, but gone opposite approaches. Um, like they're not even allowed to refer to Jesus as Jesus. He is required to be called Yeshua. And I, it was just more of like, I, I prefer like this ideation of remaining Gentile and reclaiming that actual identity. Yeah, Michael, thank you for that. Did you guys hear what he said? Um, that's really important. I, I do think that there's this logic that the New Testament is using, especially in the book of Acts, but you see it in some of the epistles as well, where it's really clear that the Gentiles are not required to become Jewish. It's really clear, right? And then, you know, in Acts 15, Peter, James, Paul, they have this big council. And then James makes this pronouncement at the end of that saying, you know, here's what we've decided. And we're going to write a letter and we're going to require these four things from the Gentiles, right? And what's interesting about those four things, which I think I could remember half of them. But what's interesting about those four things is that Paul in his later ministry breaks at least three of those things. He requires Timothy to be circumcised. He says it's okay to eat meats sacrificed to idols in Romans, right? So there's, there is this process of discernment and contextualization. And I think that there is, like what Michael's saying here, there is this impulse to move where there's no discernment and there's just sort of this mandate, right? Sort of this demand that you do, you act and you do just like, X, Y, and Z. And I, not only does the New Testament not teach that, but I think it violates the logic whereby Paul does pastoral theology. So Paul's, Paul's operating in a logic that is contrary to that impulse. So, yeah, so that's not something we do here. You're not required to become Jewish. You can call Jesus, Jesus, or JC, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but I also, I also, Michael, have a lot of sympathy for that. And I, I don't have any, I don't have any juice to uh, police it, really, you know. Yeah. So the having been in table groups um, for a while, and it seems very anyone-facing yep. towards the community. Um, but I think there is a lot of need here in Indianapolis itself. I think the place will be more committed um, for initiative work. Is there anything concerning about you know, not sending folks to other places, but mm -hmm. here in the city as to what the table might do. Yes. And especially now that we're in the broader, yep. soon to be yeah. part of the Yeah, this is a great question, um, Lee. 
one of the uh, peculiar complications about our church is that we really have been a people without a place. So we've been on the move a lot. Some of you were with us when we were in Broad Ripple at Spirit of Joy. Uh, some of you found us when we came here. We've only been here a year and a half. Um, and <clears throat> part of discerning, and then there's also the geographical dispersion that we have. You know, we have some people here from Lafayette this morning. We got people from Franklin who come to the same church. It's bonkers town, right? So we're we're trying to make do with uh, a few complications. Um, so discerning local mission, what does that mean? Where's local? You know, um, one of the things that I've done, I've tried to do with, um, I mean, there's other things we've done. Like I, I partner with Faith in Indiana. I've done some um, activism, uh, a, a, a advocating for immigration reform. I've explored that. Or how do we get our people? I've done that to explore. How, is this something I can invite our people into? Because when we were hosting asylum seekers, but what the problem was all the people who were interested in doing that with me moved outside of Marion County and I was working in Marion County. And so then, you know, Ben and I have tried to attend faith in Indiana things in Hamilton County, but then we realized most of our church doesn't live in Hamilton County. So are we going to just do this as rectors without, so we've had lots of in, initiative like explorations, but because of the dispersion and because we've kind of always been on the move every two years without a loc a locality, it's been tricky. Um, that being said, I think we're entering a season, like Lee said, we're probably going to be, yeah, unless, you know, Jesus returned, uh, we're going to be received into the Episcopal Church in the next month. So we'll have this network that's been doing mission here for a long time. So one of the draws that we had to this church is because we feel like Bishop Jennifer and her vision and values for her diocese aligns with who we are and we need help. And we feel like there's there's an apparatus. I mean, the Episcopal Church is many things, um, but one of the benefits of the Episcopal Church is that there is architecture and an apparatus around what they do. And they've leveraged a lot of resources and time and attention towards it. So we can benefit from that because we tend to be more organic than organized like the Episcopal Church. But the other thing is too, you know, we're, we're inhabiting this space, which is wonderful, great, grapes and all, but um, but it's not a permanent home. And we are approaching, I think, in the next year, finding a permanent home that will give us a place and a space and a community that then I think a lot of these questions then can answer, like, what, who is our community? Is it Hamilton County? Is it Marion County? Well, we have a neighborhood now that we are, are we, we, show up, we show up or live here. And how do we embody that there? You know? So that's how I would just answer a few of those things. Um, Kate, let me go to Heidi first, and then continue. You can't say anything that is where that Uh-huh. Yes. I don't know how to, what do you think? It is within 100 miles of this building. <laughs> Thanks, Heidi. Uh, no, um, it's, it's, it's like, three or four miles away. So we're really close to this building. Um, the reason I don't want to chat about it too much is because <clears throat> uh, I just don't know how to answer this question, Ben. Do you have any sense of how to answer this question? It's not a secret. It's not a secret, but um, there's, there's still a lot of uncertainty on it. 
Yeah. So there's some uncertainty around it, but there's a so Heidi, what the question is, um, um, if 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 the question was, would this building take us farther away from the Swinders, if that was the motivation for the question, uh, the answer is no. Well, I mean, like we said, there is a wide range Yes. And so where this building is, where this building is, uh, it it is not it we won't complicate anyone's commute substantially. Like maybe five five minutes from for ninety-eight percent of our congregation. So five or ten. It's probably Accurate. And I, I know I'm being kind of weird. I think it's because we're discerning this as a leadership team in a vestry. And I don't want to speak things that aren't true yet of our discernment. Does that make sense? I, I don't want to make, I don't want to say things and then get in front of the discernment of this, of who's been invested in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, typically my problem is over answering questions. And um, I think I just under answered that one. So I'm proud of myself today. Uh, wait, Kate and then Gina. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of bring together their thoughts about short term missions with what we said. Um, <laughs> like, have not fully landed on how I feel about yeah. not how it's like, but uh, the complications of short term missions uh, are, are numerous. I have, I've gone on short term missions that were extremely foundational to my faith and also my career honestly. Mm -hmm. um and i still have very complicated feelings about whatever they think about it um but i think what i for myself this is not for the church or for anyone else kind of certainly is that that for me the main doorway and how i can see what we can so I need to there's this there's this sense of yeah. let's go to honduras I went to Paris, you know, so yeah. I went to Paris and built a house where let's go and build a relationship with this kid. And I went three times. Yep. But that wasn't um, allowing me to see the orphans in my Yes. Wasn't allowing me to see the, the unhoused in my Yes. Um, and so I did what I just wanted in my home life in a weird, like, now almost a year. It's like actually working with orphans is part of my job. But it's here. And so I yeah. think I would just totally. Hey, there's so much to say about this. Like it's it's so much easier to to build a team, meet meet for six times and go somewhere in Honduras and work together than it is to do that locally. Right. It's just easier. It's like there's whole ministries and budgets that are that are set up to create these opportunities, right? Where we feel together, right? Um but just a couple anecdotes about this. I, I had a, 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 a guy who led mission trips in Haiti and he had, he had done this for years and had quit. And I asked him why he quit. He said, because there's only so many times you can watch uh, short-term mission people come and 
uh, proclaim the gospel to Haitians. And, and there's only so many times you can watch the same Haitian get saved. And his point was basically like, there's just this industry that is feeding an unhelpful cycle of, you know, we think we think we need to go save these people, but these people have already seen 100,000 people. Right. And so there's like this cycle that repeats. And then we were, Ben and I, at one point, were thinking of writing a book um, with Moody Publishing. Glad we didn't. But at the time, we were thinking about it. And the editor told us about uh, the book When Helping Hurts. Have you heard of this book, When Helping Hurts? Um, And he said initially, the book uh, was about lots of things. And When Helping Hurts was a, a chapter. And, and this was like 10 or 15 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. And he said, when I read that chapter, he said, uh, that, that is the book. So they scrapped all the other chapters and the guy wrote a book on that one chapter. And then that's been a huge thing for white conservative evangelicals just to realize that sometimes helping hurts. You know, and we have to and, and really what they're talking about, not in this language because they never use it, is how do we decolonize our imagination for helping? You know. All of this is really important. Uh, real quick, Heidi, I got a question here online. Uh, Michael, I think, is asking, how do I join a table group? So uh, right now there's table groups meeting in Bates Hendricks. There's a table group meeting in Midtown area. Father Ben, is that right? Uh, not quite yet. Perhaps soon? Sort of soon. Okay. Soon. And there's a table group meeting in Carmel area. Um, so you can message me and I can connect you with people who are coordinating those meetings. I'd love to see a table group in the next year or two develop on the South side. We've got a number of people on the South side who are coming to our church and I'd love to see a group coalesce there. Um, and I think then we'd have four table groups coming from areas of geographical um, density. Uh, Heidi and then Agina. Uh, yeah, it it so our connection no longer does the work that we were doing. So we haven't we haven't um, been able to host. We haven't had a new asylum seeker come in a couple years. Uh, we still have one who one who lives with the Fasolts. His name is Celeste or Celestine. He's my mechanic. He fixes cars. Um, so if you need a mechanic, he's really good. Um, and he also doesn't, he he'll he comes to you. So he's sort of an on-the-spot mechanic. So yeah, we haven't done it in a while because our connection to that was a was an Anglican priest in South Bend, and she stopped doing it because it became too unruly, like too it was too much work for her. Yeah. But we are, I mean, we we'd be open to it, obviously. Uh, Gina. Yes. So, what I want to is to help the hurting Christians because the Christians. Yes. And I feel like our church has a model of engineering and hopeful. Um, so, when I think about mission, have you thought about this being a place where that will replicate in other places. So what I'm thinking is, yes. I live in Franklin, there's an Episcopal church in Franklin, that's the community that I love and work. 
and I have friends that I keep saying, come to church with me, please come to church Yes. Because they're hurting and they think this doesn't exist. But is there a potential at some point from a mission standpoint to think about could we bring a portion of this kind of mom? Because even the Episcopal Church came in and said, wow, we've never seen this. Right, right. We've never seen this. Is there a chance that this would be something that would replicate on the wider scale that we could bring, you know, me as an Episcopalian, yes. I could go back to Franklin and there would be some of us who would go to the Episcopal Church in Franklin, not saying you're doing everything wrong, right. but how can we join you and help you and maybe provide a place for right. the people in Johnson County to come who had experienced what we talk about here? Right. The answer is yes. Okay. The answer is yes. So, but but now we're doing it. So before we were kind of these uh, uh, cowboys out on the frontier in the ACNA doing whatever the heck we wanted, and now we're now we're in a diocese that has a different processes, different imagination, and the diocese, to, uh, to their credit, has been uh, extremely open to the kinds of ways that we want to operate. Um, and we want to be good guests in this diocese to not then operate with the same kind of maverick mentality. And I'm using that a little pejoratively, but the same kind of we do whatever we want. So cooperating, I mean, there's already a big Episcopal footprint here. So cooperating with the existing ministries and not replacing or usurping them, you know, and, and being, being generous and charitable and kind in that. But the, the sh that's the long answer. The short answer is yes. Yeah, Heidi. So what she said, we had a conversation I've had for a while. Um, but saying that this is unique to in the Episcopal Church has been not seeing this, but how would you define that uniqueness? And or like what were the factors that that would be given to the table? Thank you. This is our third topic, leadership. Um, um, and we're going to go a little bit over today, but not too much. Uh, but that's just kind of what I do. I go over time. Um, so leadership at the table, our, our model of three rectors is unprecedented. There's three co-rectors. There's no, there's no senior rector or rector. We share kind of authority in the church together. And so Ben oversees liturgy and staff. Uh, Spencer oversees kids ministry and the vestry, and I oversee discipleship and, and mission. So groups and classes and um, things like that. And we're really seeking to change the imagination from an org chart being top down, you know, who's who reports to whom and who's at the top to a center out. So the rectors are at the center. And then the center exists not, not, to, not in distinction from the margin, but to expand. And I think this is the way that we see Jesus operating with power, is that he's, he is so ready to give power away or to, in, to empower people to do work. Like, like the Samaritan woman becomes the mission uh, the, the the mission mentor to his disciples. It's incredible. The gathering demoniac, go proclaim the gospel. 
in Galilee or in the Gentile regions. Go do it. Jesus is like this all the time. So we want to do that. We want to be people who bear authority to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. And so we're operating in a system where we, so, so then what, what does it mean to be a priest in that system, right? Well, the, 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 the thing that a priest does that no one else does is consecrate Eucharist and baptize. That's it. So you'll see lots of people preach here. Lots of people pray here, right? The, the ministry, the work of the ministry, discipleship, all of that is done as we invest in other people. You see women and men leading here, not just not just men. Um, <clears throat> and then Heidi, I think the reason why we did that is because we came out of a really abusive, toxic situation where love wasn't taken seriously. Where love was absent from a Christian space. And we, we felt in our bodies, stored up in our bodies, uh, the cost of that, the harm that that does, the abuse and the injury we, we incurred. And so then about, you know, nine years ago, when we decided to start this church, we were like, how do we organize in a way that takes love seriously? What is love and how do we take it seriously? And how do we create an architecture, an organizational architecture that gives purview and permission for love to be regnant, for love to reign? How does love reign differently than domination? So we're committed to then um, things like mutual submission, uh, accountability. You know, three rectors means that at any given time, one of us is not getting our way. At any given time, one of us probably needs a pastor. This past Wednesday, I needed a pastor at our little pastoral meeting. And I'm really glad that I have two of them, right? Um, there's accountability here. Um, and so the way that leadership then is designed is that we want to see the center that we're responsible for as rectors expand as much as is possible according to this logic of love that we're learning to live together. Um, that means that some people just don't stick around because they're really looking for the hierarchy or they're looking for sort of another model. I tell this story frequently, but there was a, there was a person that visited our church about five years ago and he, he introduced himself and he gave me his name. And then he started telling me all the people he knew and all the people he'd spent time with that were like celebrities. And I was like, man, this is crazy. You know, I spent time with a lot of celebrities too, but I don't know if I'd ever like just share an introduction. And I, my, my thinking was, you know, um, this guy is acting out of a, a certain social imaginary that makes that that is pervasive, right? Where we trade on clout and capital and status, and it's who you know and where you where you've been and what your curriculum vitae looks like and how many books you've written and how many downloads you get, and and we are just committed to not being driven by any of that, any of that. So, like I, you know, I preach twelve times a year. You know, and I, I don't say this from a, if we wanted to become a church that was built upon people speaking, that doesn't make any sense. 
but that's like, I don't know, that'd be hell on earth for me. A church of people just coming to hear me preach. It's hell on earth for me. And same with Ben and Spencer, right? Same thing with them. They could preach more too, and then a lot of people would come, but that's just not who we are. So that's how leadership functions. We're taking love seriously, meaning uh, power is to be shared. And the center expands as power is shared. Um, questions about that? Yeah, Dennis. Uh, I incredibly appreciate or I appreciate that system and, and what we were trying to create. And and I would I would I just ask how how do you protect from that changing? Because um, I mean you you mentioned times that I've heard you talk about that, like how it is intoxicating and stuff like that. So how does um Yeah, how do we protect against that? <clears throat> um, one of the ways we protect against it is leading people through the discipleship that we ourselves are living so that there's a common shared language and value. So like, for instance, um, there have been times when I've, I've made mistakes in public settings and Ben and Spencer have called me on that. And then I've rectified those mistakes. That just doesn't happen with people who are in charge of churches, you know? And so I think there's just this, I, I understand that what's best for me and our church is that I don't, I don't get to do that stuff. There's no trump cards. There's no final say. Like, I don't know. I, it just ruins it ruins churches <laughs> and it ruins lives and I don't want any I don't want any a part of it and so like that's that's what it means to come in the center is that you're committed to just I mean there's a lot of ways to answer this Dennis like if I think God is doing something then God's not just going to tell me why would God just do that like the it's something that we're all gonna you know we're all gonna see this right or not right? like i preached last week the, the 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 trail of bodies behind the god told me bus is long and bloody and i have no desire to be on that bus or driving it i don't know there's way more to say about that but yeah phil and then Gina. Yeah, so we'll see what we'll see. I think the Episcopal Church is intrigued by our system. They also don't have anything. We 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 uh there there is no imagination for co-rectoring in the Episcopal Church. So we're gonna have to get creative. Whether it means we uh share, like you know, one year Spencer's the rector, and Ben and I are associates the next year, Ben's the rector, and Spencer and I are associates the next year I'm the rector. You know, I don't know if that I don't know if that'll be it, 
but we won't change the way we function. And we haven't been asked to. And frankly, I don't want, I, I wouldn't. I just wouldn't. I mean, not in, not in, I mean, I woke up this morning and Mike Bickle, the International House of Prayer guy, has been charged with uh, sexual crimes. And it's every week. There's another person who has too much power, usually a man, usually a white dude, in an organization, and they misuse it. I am no better than these people. I mean, I'm not just saying that I would commit sexual crimes. What I'm saying is you put anybody in a position where they, where people do what they say and they are, are esteemed and idolized, and it's a recipe for all hell breaking loose. And so part of our organization, Phil, is just to say, I think this is best for me. Like the authority I have in this church, the way that I bear that responsibly is to be in these accountable, submitted relationships. Otherwise, it's not that I don't trust myself. I'm not saying like I'm like one step away from disaster. I, I just don't want to be, because I think I become a different person in a different structure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, we're not, I don't think we're changing unless, yeah, I, I don't want to change. Maybe I should say that. Gina. To partially answer that question, uh, having been raised in the family of God, I'm well aware of the hierarchical structure. Yeah. So it is, it is that. So um, just what you're saying, we don't want to. So I'm glad you hear yeah. Working within that too, because you you can have a vision for someone above you with an edict that comes down. Yeah. And says, do it or don't do it. Yeah. So, uh, hopefully, we're in a position with Jennifer that it's vision Jennifer that there's going to be negotiation and um, some leverage there. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and we need to wrap up here. Um, but Bishop Jennifer is not a dictatorial leader, right? Um, but there's also, so she, she's, so she can't, she doesn't want to, she won't just like tell us what to do and how to do it. But for instance, uh, we're going to, there's going to be some liturgical changes that are coming. Thank Ben talked about those last week that are coming as we enter the Episcopal church. And, and that's us just being like, okay, we, we want to, we want to accommodate to what we're entering. Right. Um, and so there will be things that we do because she wants them like that, that we can inhabit and, but there, there's also things, and there's a lot of those things, like artifacts that don't really change who we are. When we do the creed before the sermon or after the sermon, it doesn't change who we are. If we drink from the cup or dip in the cup, it doesn't change who we are. Those are just artifacts, right, around it. The, the things that are more essential to who we are, um, I think one of our pieces of discernment to enter the Episcopal Church was those things seem to be appreciated rather than... Um, there's concern about them. So people like Brendan and Kristen and Bishop Jennifer have been like, we really like that part of what you do. So that that kind of has encouraged us to be like, you know, we're not going to have to change who we are to be a part of this group. Yeah. Okay, we need to we need to end. I've gone over time, um, but there is uh, there is a chance for all those people in this room and others to become members, and we'll do that next week. And uh, I just want to say a brief word about membership. Membership can get really weird in churches. Like 
uh, I mean, again, I've seen like stories every week about like weird things happening where people use membership as kind of like this um, license to police and gatekeep and go after people. But here's what we mean by membership. Um, membership is a commitment to this church that you're going to participate in the vision, mission, and practices of our church, that you're going to participate financially in uh, the life and the mission of our church, that you're going to uh, be as much as possible involved in the in the ministry. So table groups or DNA groups are serving on Sunday mornings, that you're committed to resolving conflict and being in reconciled relationships here. That you're going to uh, practice prayer, the corporate prayer and personal prayer and reading of the scriptures and um, participate in our worship gatherings. It's basically saying, I, I, want to, I want to be a Christian with these people here. And, and we're trying to inhabit membership in a way that is life-giving, that allows us to look at each other and say, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to you, right? Which is tricky for a, a rector to say. Um, I think because there's more at stake for me and, you know, are you at our church or not? But uh, we're trying to inhabit membership in a different way. So we ha- we need to close. I'm going to close this in prayer. If you have questions about membership and what that means, because I know we're doing that next week along with baptisms, you can come chat with me afterwards. But let me, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, I, we do appreciate uh, the work you're doing here at our church and the vision and the um, embodied practices of learning how to live in love together. Lord, I commit, we commit all of our efforts to uh, be formed in Christ and to bear witness to Christ in the world and to bear authority uh, with the wisdom that's from above here. We commit all those efforts to you and pray that your spirit would brood over us and birth new creation in us. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'll just say on a practical note, if you do want to explore membership further, I'm going to write a web address up here that you can look on our website. Oh. There's actually a form there. If you are interested in being a member, 